we have finally made it to chapter 3 in Amos. And while I recognize that Amos is described as a sheep herder and a fig dresser, um, I'm going to have to give him some, uh, I don't even know what the word y'all use these days, but I want, I'm going to have to give him props for his Holy Spirit equipping him to be an incredible speaker. He's actually got some, uh, some good tricks up his sleeve that all good communicators do, and one of them is getting folks to lean in before you hit them with the main points. And so one of the things that Joel pointed out last week is that that's exactly what Amos has done. He, uh, he starts off the whole thing by just giving punch after punch to all the bad guys in, in Israel's territory. So they're just probably cheering right along, yeah, yeah, get them, get them, get them. And even their little siblings down to the south, you know, God has a judgment against Judah. And then Amos uh, kind of shocks everybody because he immediately turns to Israel. And so he, he got started last week giving his judgment against Israel, but now he's going to kind of pause uh, in the prophecy to kind of set, set the stage. He, he started what he had to say, and now he's going to set the stage. So in the first eight verses, he's going to establish some things, four things. His first point is that, Israel, there's a reason that the punishment is coming your way. Okay, That's, it's, it's justified. The second is to remind them that they were joined to God by mutual agreement. So this was not just something God had planned. This is something that you agreed to. Uh, the third is they want to make sure that they understand that this judgment that's coming is from God. Make no bones about it. This is not because an enemy has it in for you or anything else. This is coming from God. And then lastly, Amos is going to basically say, and I've been put in the position where I have to testify to this. I have to prophesy. And so in verses 1 and 2, we're going to find out why Israel is God's target. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. See, as American Express is famous for saying, membership has its privileges, okay? But what God's saying here is, yeah, but it has its responsibilities too. God chose the sons of Jacob and his people, and he delivered them from slavery in Egypt, but not without ramifications, ongoing, long-term ramifications. The family relationship that was established could not be undone. This is a commitment you can't get out of. This is worse than the mafia or a gang. Being joined with God means there is no going back. Being born in my family under my father meant that I received his love and his protection. All right? But it also means that I had to submit to his leadership and authority. When I submitted to him in obedience, we enjoyed a really good fellowship together. Uh, and when I disobeyed, that fellowship was damaged and I incurred discipline. God is declaring to these folks that they're being punished because they have rejected him as their leadership and authority. They were given a good father. They chose to turn to another direction. Verse 3 reminds them that you guys agreed to this. This is a mutual agreement. In verse 3 it says, Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Okay, so now this is another one of those... Uh, skills that Amos is using, where you get somebody answering the questions in the direction you want them to go. You get them having to admit to what's already been laid out, and then you hit them with what you want. So he says, do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? 
Because what he knew was if we look back in your history, God's reminding them that Jacob himself had agreed to walk with God. You remember the children's song, We're Climbing Jacob's Ladder? Okay, you could probably hear it from Bible school growing up. So Jacob had this dream where the angels were ascending and descending, and God comes to him and tells him how good it's going to be, that he's chosen him and what he's planning on doing with him. Great news. And so when Jacob wakes up, he, he makes an oath of his own. He makes a declaration. And so in Genesis 28, 20 through 22, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a tenth to you. So God's reminding these children that their forefather had pledged himself to God, just like a bride pledges herself to the husband. And so now Amos continues by declaring that this impending attack is coming from God. Once again, the implied answer is no. He's going to ask some more questions. You don't have any choice but to answer no. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prayer? No prey? No. Does a young lion cry out from his den if he's taken nothing? No. Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trout? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Let's don't get confused. He's not talking about ancient hunting practices here. That's not the point. God is not roaring for nothing. Israel is the captured prey. Israel is the one who was taken. Israel sprang the trap. They're the ones that tripped the snare. He goes on, Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? The reason the trumpet sounded is because Israel is under attack. It's going to be under attack from God himself. The disaster coming upon them is from the Lord. The, the verse, now I admit, has caused a whole lot of turmoil down through history. A lot of folks have argued, in fact they're still arguing about it today, because preachers tend to declare God's judgment following sometimes natural or man-made disasters. They want, to, they want to speak to what it means that the disaster came. But should we have to decide God's motive for every bad thing that happens, for every disaster? Should we even presume to speak for God's intentions after it has occurred? These questions are a whole lot more than we got time to cover in today's sermon. But I just want to point out that Scripture is filled with the tension of God's sovereignty and man's disobedience. God's not chosen to make it either or. He has been quite comfortable leaving us with a both and in Scripture. We have to agree that both parts are in there. Now, <coughs> I'm not going to attempt to try to bring God's ways down to what we can understand. Rather, I want to encourage us all to rest in the one who is far above us in every way. It's, it's very clear that he's in control of everything, both deliverance and destruction. He's declared that he will bring about his purposes and the good of those he loves in all things. I'm imploring us to be careful about giving commentary on God's intentions from an extremely limited vantage point. So Amos now brings himself into the picture. 
In verse 7, he says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. So Amos is revealing that God's given him a secret to share. And don't we all just love secrets? I mean, they're so juicy. Isn't it nice knowing something that nobody else knows, and then you get to pop, you know, here's the, here's the big reveal? Talk about prophecy if you want to draw a crowd. I mean, if you want to start talking about stuff that hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen, and especially if you think God's given you a special insight into it, you can draw a crowd, especially among religious people. Talk about the secrets that you claim God's revealed to you, but nobody else knows. Before we get wrapped around an axle looking for God to telegraph everything he's doing to us through a prophet, I want us to remember that we live in a different time than Amos. Something really big has changed since Amos. The difference in our time is that Jesus has torn that curtain right down the center. He revealed the biggest reveal ever. He made it public. All God's people know it. All of us know it. We're not waiting on a prophet to tell it. God's heart for the nations and for his work in the world and what he's going to do, it's all proclaimed in Jesus. There's never going to be a bigger reveal than the one that God has shown us in Christ. Paul makes this plain in his letter to the Colossians. In chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, he says, The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Paul talked a lot about mystery in his writings. He says, To them God has chosen to make known how great how great among the Gentiles. So I want to make sure the Gentiles are seeing it, not just the children of Israel. I want to make sure how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. When you find yourself getting lost in fear or celebration of modern-day prophecy, remember Jesus is on the throne and we can rest in His grace. Make sure that that's true for you. Because that's what's going to be exhibited to everyone around you, is whether or not you believe that. So Amos now states the facts and his responsibility. In verse 8 he says, look, the lion has roared. Who will not fear? Is there anybody that can stand to have God roar at them and not fear? And so then he says, (coughs) that is probably not something y'all wanted to hear. Um, all right. The Lord has spoken, who but can prophesy? So Amos is saying, look, I, I don't have any choice at this point. The news has been shared with me. He's made it clear he wants me to share it with you. I don't have any other choice. Anything else would be to disobey God. All right. Peter found himself in the same place. You remember back in Acts? He's standing before Jewish authorities, and this is what they tell him in chapter 5. Look, we strictly charged you not to teach in his name. But here you are, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. I mean, if you're not in enough trouble already, go ahead and just get in somebody's face with the truth. God exalted him as his right hand and leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, 
whom God has given to those who obey him. When God places us in these circumstances, and I believe from time to time he places all of us in these type circumstances, where we know what the truth is. We know we're supposed to speak it. What are we going to do? I really ask us, let's don't meddle in the outcomes. Let's don't try to figure it out and back calculate into what we do. Let's just obey. Speak the truth from the motivation of love and let the results remain in God's hands. Avoid at all costs the temptation to calculate your decision and your actions by what impact it's going to have on you. God's in control. Let your actions actually prove that you believe it. Amos now reveals something unexpected. God's inviting witnesses to come and see his point of view. All right? But it's who he invites that gets everybody's attention. In verse 9, he says, Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. So basically, let's take the folks who had you as slaves and let's take some of your bitter enemies like the Klingons of your time and let's bring them up to the mountain because they're going to get to watch what happens to you. They're going to look in and they're going to see that this judgment is deserved. Philistines and Egyptians are being invited to bear witness that Israel's not even living up to the standards of godless people, much less to the standards that God gave them. How shameful and humiliating that the sins of God's people are to be displayed for their oppressors and their enemies. You know this has got to be a slap in the face for people that thought they were in good standing just because they were the chosen. How many sins of churches, Christian leaders, individual Christians, have we seen displayed for the world? When the sins of the church and her leaders and members are paraded through the press, have we even thought about the fact that God's allowing the Ku Klux Klan, that He's allowing Planned Parenthood, the producers of pornography, human traffickers, terrorists, and evil regimes around the world to see the sins of those who claim to follow him? This should humble us. It ought to sadden us. It ought to drive us into repentance. But let's be careful. Let's, let's, let's not run to the other ditch on the other side of the road. Let's don't start shooting our wounded because we're well known for that too as the church. Before we get carried away and start picking up stones, we've got to remember what we've been instructed. You better look in at you first. You better determine where you stand before you start picking up stones to throw them at anyone else. Finally, Amos resumes the prophecy of judgment against Israel in verse 11. So these first verses have really just been to set up what he's now going to return to, that he left off in chapter 2, and he's now returning to this actually, hey, here's what's actually going to happen. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, 
and your strongholds shall be plundered. Notice that the adversary is unnamed. And we're going to find out later it's the Assyrians. We know it's not the Egyptians or the Philistines because they've been invited to come watch what happens. <coughs> Can you pause me just a minute? All right, verse 12 makes the totality of this judgment very plain. Thus says the Lord, As the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued, with the corner of a couch and maybe a part of a bed. Folks, this is not good news. All right, I know that the word rescued in our modern English kind of comes with this positive connotation, like, like that's a good thing, right? That's not what's being said here. This refers to Exodus 22:13, where the law held that a shepherd was responsible for a sheep unless he could prove it was a predator attack. So if he could bring back some shred of this torn animal, then he wasn't responsible for it. You remember what Joseph's brothers did, right? Dipped the robe in blood, brought it back to dad so that they can convince him that Joseph has been torn by a wild beast. This was the way you proved that this thing absolutely doesn't exist anymore. It's gone. The destruction is total. And then he continues the bad news in verse 13. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. And this doesn't exactly make sense until we start looking into the context of what he's talking about. So you remember, Jacob had his dream. Well, he ended up naming the place where he had the dream Bethel. And he set up a stone to mark his commitment to God. Now, sadly, Bethel would become a place of worship and an altar that the northern tribes would gather at that was neither commanded nor approved by God. Their man-made rituals for worship would replace what God had ordained. So even in Jerusalem, it was thought that the horns of the altar was like your safe spot. That's your refuge. If you could get to the horns of the altar, you grab a hold of them, and then you start begging for mercy. If you look in 1 Kings chapter 2, it tells the story of Joab. Joab was rebelling against Solomon, the new king. And so his treachery was found out, and he had been David's, Joab had been David's military general. And so he runs to the altar, and he's clinging to the horns, hoping to be saved from his treachery. And so Solomon sends one of his mighty men, Benah, I almost said Benaha, it's Benaiah. Um, my wife said Benaha about three times reading this sermon to me on the way over here, and so I'm sorry it was stuck in my head. So um, Benaiah comes in, and he says, Joab, get out here. I've got to kill you. The king sent me. And Joab says, no, I'm staying right here. I'm going to hang on to these. I'm going to die right here. And so Benaiah goes back to the king, and he says, I told him to come out, and he wouldn't come out. And Solomon says, all right, well, then go back and slaughter him while he's hanging on to the horns of the altar. And that's exactly what Benaiah does. See, when we listen to this story, we realize that the horns came up short. They didn't do him any good. God's going beyond that. He says, not only then not do you any good then, all right, I'm getting ready to cut them off. They're not even going to be there. There's going to be no hope for you to grab a hold of them. Listen, how we live matters. 
if you want to understand that statement, go look at the life of Joab. This guy does not have anything to write home about. He was a mighty warrior, but he was not a good man. How we live matters, and what we cling to in death matters. If it is not sufficient to save us, then we're going to suffer ultimate loss. Amos finishes in verse 15 by declaring God's word against all that Israel had built. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. No physical place, no physical item, no physical action, and no amount of pleading can save from the judgment of God. The point that I pray we're recognizing is that there never has been and there never will be refuge from God's judgment on those on whom it falls. Now, if this were the end of the book, if this were the end of Amos' prophecy, then the only thing we could do is just like lapse into utter despair. Can we as God's people take comfort then in the fact that, oh, this is the God of the Old Testament. This is a different God. He thought differently back then, you know. This is the judgmental one. All right, can we, can we go there with him? Because some people want to do that. Isn't this a specific people in a specific time in response to their specific history of sin? We haven't done what Israel's done, have we? We have Jesus. Let's focus on what Jesus says. Okay. Here's Jesus speaking in Revelation chapter 3, 15 through 17. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing but not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus is speaking to a New Testament church, the church in Laodicea. And they, just like the people of Israel, were prosperous. They believed they were rich and they needed nothing. They were not seeing themselves from Jesus' perspective. Listen, we need Jesus we need to see ourselves from His perspective. If we lay our hearts open before God and we're affirmed, then praise Jesus. Right home to Mama. If we are affirmed, fantastic. But what happens if we lay our hearts out before God and we find out, no, you're, you're confused, you're not seeing yourself from my perspective, and you're, you're lukewarm. What are we to do? Jesus answers as he continues in verses 18 through 20. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. 
We desperately need Jesus. This is not about what we bring to the table. It's not about what we have to offer. We need what comes from his refining fire. We need him to clothe us. And we need his salve so that our eyes are opened and that we can see clearly. We actually need to be crying out for the reproof and the discipline that he says he's going to bring. This is what will make us zealous. This is what will give us the gift of repentance. This is what will help us see ourselves from his perspective. Listen, he's knocking at the door of the church. I realize that tons of people have used this verse. And I'm not going to argue with them about the fact that, you know, Jesus is knocking on your heart and you need to let him in and all that sort of stuff as if it's individual. But what we got to understand is, I know for a fact it means he's knocking on the door of the church. He's talking to a church that is paying so little attention, they don't even hear him knocking. <clears throat> Will we hear the knock? Will we invite him in? Do we understand that what we stand to gain is sweet fellowship and a buffet fit for a king? That's what he's offering. Now, I have to admit, I don't know many folks that would ever finish reading the Bible if we started them out in the Minor Prophets. Somebody says, where should I start reading? I, I would not suggest that you send them to the Minor Prophets. Okay, this little book of Amos is enough to convince me that this would just be horrifying if we didn't, somebody didn't come along. Thankfully, Joel, when we started talking about this book, he says, hey, hang on for chapter 9. And I'm like, all right, we'll hang on for chapter 9 because so far this is pretty wicked. This is, this is not, you know, an upper. So here we go, chapter 9. There's truths that we need to apply. But Amos finishes the book with some foreshadowing that really helps us see, okay, wait, this is not a done deal. In verse 11 of chapter 9, he says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Okay, this is not the end of the story for Israel. Exactly what we know is what we need to be sharing with the world. First, we've got to recognize it. First, we've got to really get it. It's got to saturate us. And then we're not going to be able to help it. It's going to overflow into the world around us. Listen, they need to understand there is no refuge from the judgment of God. If it falls on you, you will be crushed. And the thing about it is, the good news is that it did just that. Jesus took our sin. Jesus became our sin. Time, when it came time for that to fall on him, he did not take refuge. He could have, but he chose not to take refuge on our behalf. He was crushed for our sin. He didn't take refuge. He became our refuge.
When we get to the point that we believe who he says he is, when we believe that he has done the work necessary to save us, then we cling like a child on our father's shoulders. You know when you just ride your kid around? One day y'all will be riding your kids around, okay? And you'll say, hang on. And they'll grab their head like for everything. You know, they got their fist in your hair. They're doing their everything to hang on. What they don't realize is, dude, I got your legs. You can't go anywhere. You're mine. I'm telling you to hang on because I enjoy it. We, like Joab, cry out, no, I'm not going to let go. But unlike Joab, whose hope was unfounded, ours is sure. Ours is guaranteed. So let us continue to cry. I will die right here. I have no other hope. There is no other option. I don't have a backup plan. The Lord has spoken. I am His, and He is not letting go. And so I have none other to cling to but Him. When we live this way, both individually and corporately as the church, God displays to the world His glory. Those in the world who are walking far from God desperately need this hope. Some may think that those mired in sin and carrying out the wickedness of white supremacy and abortion and pornography and human trafficking and terrorism and evil dictators, some may think they're beyond God's reach or even His desire for redemption. They'd be wrong. God has exposed the horrible sins of His people throughout Scripture. He wants us to understand. He's trying to make the point. All of these people, these horrible people that did awful things, I still saved. I still redeemed. We desperately need Him. And so even as we rightfully expose the evil in this world and rightfully call out injustice, let us, let us don't get lost in just our crying out against injustice. Let us make sure that at the same time we're pointing at Jesus. That we're letting people know He is still the answer. He has always been the answer. He, was, he will always be the answer. Even for the worst of sinners. And I, like Paul, can claim, that's me. You may be here this evening believing that you're beyond God's desire or ability for redemption. You may have committed secret sins that you are bound and determined to take to your grave. If you think that you have crossed some line, that you have reached some point of no return, then I want to lovingly, as much as I can, tell you, you're believing a lie. That is not the truth revealed in the gospel. Cry out to Jesus. Declare to Him your sin and the helplessness that you have come to discover about being able to do anything about it. Come and experience the God who is redeeming seemingly unredeemable people for His glory and who has refused to quit until He's done.